Welcome to IMTV Radio, bringing you the latest analysis from Socialist Appeal, the British section of the international Marxist tendency. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud or iTunes, or visit www.socialist.net. Um, James Connolly then, uh, yeah, he was born 150 years ago this year, uh, in 1868, and he died um, after participating in the, Easter, uh, the, the uprising in, uh, of Easter week in 1916. He was shot by a British firing squad, and uh, he, uh, um, as, as Lenin said, you know, the, the great revolutionaries during the course of their life are, are forever crucified, but in their, in their death they are turned into these harmless icons, and that is very much the case with James Connolly. He's turned into, his ideas have been distorted in more or less... Uh, um, uh, sympathetic or less sympathetic ways and turned into basically a, a national liberation icon if you like but uh, the real content of his thought, thought the fact that he was a, a great revolutionary Marxist the greatest uh, Marxist that these islands have produced is uh, is glossed over is overlooked or is, is turned into a bit of a side note so um, I'll go straight into it uh, in, into his life really so he was born in 1868 as I mentioned in Cowgate in Edinburgh which was uh, to parents of Irish ancestry in a, in a slum, in, uh, to working class parents. His father was a manure carter, and uh, he only had the, uh, the rudiments of, a, of, a, of, a, of an education, if you like, a formal education. Um, it was, uh, he, he, he left school at about 10 or 11, and then went into various jobs, which he did from the age of 11 through to the age of 14. And uh, throughout his life, in fact, his education in Irish history, in Marxist theory, he was almost entirely self-educated. In fact, it was only down to the diligence of his dad that he was even literate. So um, he was, uh, uh, came from extreme poverty. But at the age of 14, like a lot of young men, he went uh, and joined the British Army, which might seem like a bit of a contradictory thing, because as I will go into, the events of his early life were extremely tumultuous events, particularly in Ireland. And there's no doubt that a teenager of his... Uh, 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 even of his, his years uh, at the age of 14 would have been a revolutionary Irish nationalist because of these events which were radicalising the, uh, the, the Irish population. Um, but actually it's not a contradiction really. A lot of uh, young Irishmen at that time would have joined the British Army precisely to learn how to use a gun with the intention of one day turning it on the British Empire itself. And it was, uh, it, it was the fact that the Liverpool regiment that he joined, they actually kept the guns and, and ammunition under lock and key because they didn't actually trust the majority of Irishmen who were in that regiment. Um, and uh, it was as part of the British Army that he, he went to Ireland for the first time. Uh, he went to various parts of Ireland. Uh, he ended up in, in Dublin and he would have met the uh, Irish workers for the first time, gone to socialist meetings. And uh, that's also where he, uh, he met his future wife, Lily Reynolds. Um, and uh, it's, it's this period which he was becoming radicalised. And uh, I think to really understand his, his understanding of both the national question and the class question and the connection between the two, we have to look at what was happening at the time of Connolly's youth. Um, now, and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the Irish question in general, the origins of this question. Now, Connolly always understood, uh, if you read his writings, uh, that the, the national question is fundamentally a bread and butter question. It's a question of economics at the end of the day, in the last analysis. And uh, the, um, the national question has always been tied to this question. We've, we had a session on the English uh, Revolution, and part of, uh, as part of that, Cromwell actually uh, invaded Ireland, and you had the, uh, uh, that, was, that really completed the, the English invasion of Ireland, which started from the, uh, the Norman Conquest. And uh, uh, the, the, this was not simply a national imposition. It was not simply the imposition of political rule over Ireland, but you had the imposition of uh, a new set of property relations, of feudal and capitalist property relations upon Ireland, which previously existed in a... Uh, you, you had forms of co primitive communism existing in Ireland until very late in the historical record. Um, but, um, yeah, so you had this, the imposition of these uh, absentee landlords and uh, the, the majority of the population were dispossessed. And uh, one thing to always understand is the, persi the persistence of the Irish question, the national question in Ireland, comes down to the fact that the connection with England was always a source of backwardness for Ireland. This is one of the most important things, particularly since 1801 with the, uh, the, the, the Union. Um, you had... Uh, um, Irish industry, incipient Irish industry, was crushed by uh, competition from British imports. Uh, except for a little bit in, in the north, uh, around Belfast, you had a bit of linen industry, shipbuilding and so forth. For the, for the most part, Ireland was held in a condition of agricultural backwardness, supplying the, the new manu manufacturing towns in, in, in England. 
Um, and therefore, the majority of people simply to survive had to hold on to the land. And you had this subdivision of the land into tiny little parcels. And uh, this absentee landlord class that developed a system of rack renting, where they took huge amounts of the produce but gave nothing back to Ireland, kept keeping it in this condition of backwardness. And by the 60s and 70s, by Connolly's youth, nothing had fundamentally changed, really. Uh, you still had this absentee landlord class. Uh, but the world market was making itself more and more felt upon Irish agriculture. Competition from Argentina, the United States, was pushing down uh, food prices, but these rents were still being extracted, and the, pe uh, the, the tenant farmers were unable to pay the rent. So you had the explosion of class war in the 1870s on the countryside in Ireland. The organisation of the Land League under people like um, uh, 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 Michael Davitt and uh, Charles Stuart Parnell, who, um, yeah, and you had this uh, real intense period of class war where the, the tenant farmers and the labourers would involved in withholding rent, uh, refusing to hand over agricultural produce, and uh, uh, boycotting the most uh, 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 vile landlords and so forth. In fact, the word boycott actually comes from this period. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and yet the leadership, of course, was under middle-class leadership, basically. People like Parnell and the Irish party um, were basically demanding, um, they were demanding land acts and they were demanding some form of home rule, uh, some sort of Irish parliament. And uh, this, the, the, the Liberal government at the time were completely unable to crush this movement. Uh, and therefore they were forced to use, they used all sorts of repression. Parnell was thrown in prison, but Gladstone's government had to go and negotiate him whilst, with him whilst he was being held in Kilmainham prison. And uh, uh, he agreed, he made a massive mistake, he agreed to call off the land war and diverted the struggle into parliamentary means. Uh, he was given all sorts of promises about a land act and a home rule bill, but it was completely, of course, betrayed by the, by the Liberals. Uh, and in fact, the Liberals went even further, and using a really hypocritical pretext, they demanded of the Irish party, because of some scandal involving Parnell, that they get rid of their leader, they, that they get rid of Parnell, basically. And they obliged, the parliamentarians obliged, they got rid of Parnell at the beck and call of the, of, of, of the ruling class in Britain, basically. They betrayed their own leader, if you like. So this was, these are the sort of events which would have been forming uh, Connolly's consciousness. Intense class war coming under a middle class leadership and the middle class leadership itself betraying the movement. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, I, I have to be a little bit telegraphic here, but uh, in 1889, Connolly uh, goes AWOL actually. Uh, he leaves the, uh, the British army and he returns to, uh, to Scotland, uh, eventually making his way to Edinburgh. Um, and bringing his family over and he meets a guy called uh, John Leslie and John Leslie for the first time induces him into the Marxist movement. He wrote a wonderful little pamphlet actually on the Irish question and you can see the influence of this man on Connolly's ideas. Um, and yeah, Connolly really absorbed Marxist ideas into his, uh, into, into his flesh really. Um, now I don't have much time to really go into his, his, this period of his life but he, uh, he, he quickly became the centre of the Marxist movement, the Scottish Socialist Federation in Edinburgh and also the Independent Labour Party. He stood in elections and he found himself victimised. Um, and struggling to support his family, he basically decided to go full-time for the movement at this point. And an advert was put out in Justice, the, the Marxist paper in Britain, and uh, he was delighted to get a response uh, from the Dublin Socialist Society, actually got back in touch with him. It was mostly an organisation, a small organisation based in Dublin, asked him to come over and turn their little group into a, a serious revolutionary organisation. <laughs> Uh, something he was delighted, obviously, to do. So he, he, he went over to Dublin with his family and uh, he founded, uh, he, through a process of discussion, um, he, he, he won over these young people to uh, his, his own outlook, if you like, on the, 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 the relationship between the national question and the class question and founded, out of these discussions, a new party called the Irish Socialist Republican Party. And this party represents a, an, absol it's an absolutely unique party in Irish history up until this point. Um, because all previous parties have basically seen the national struggle, the, the struggle for self-determination in Ireland, and the, uh, the class struggle, the struggle for socialism, um, as basically two fundamentally separate and different struggles, if you like. Uh, all previous parties had essentially done this. And, and Connolly not only... Um, uh, if you like, fuse these two things. He actually analysed the reasons, if you like, that these things had become radically separated. And he showed it was the, it was the role, the historical role of the, the, the middle class, basically, in Ireland, the role that it had played, uh, caused this situation to develop. 
And uh, I'll quote from a number of articles here. This is from Erin's Hope, which was a collection of articles written in the 1890s, where he explains this situation. He says that the, uh, the Irish middle class, uh, by virtue of their social position and education, stepped to the front as Irish patriot leaders. They owed their wealth to the manner in which they had contrived to wedge themselves into a place in the commercial life of the Saxon enemy, assimilating his ideas and adopting his methods. So he showed how the Irish capitalist class really, uh, simply, all, always really just formed a cog in the, in the greater machine of British capitalism. It was extremely dependent upon British capitalism. Um, and then he goes on that uh, their political influence they derive from their readiness at all times to do lip service to the cause of Irish nationality, which in their phraseology meant simply the transfer of the seat of government from London to Dublin and the consequent transfer to their own or their relatives' pockets of some portion of the legislative fees and lawyers' pickings. So he shows that really the basis of the nationalism, if you like, of the middle class in Ireland was a, a really just to sort of gain for themselves certain of the privileges which, which or were currently with the British capitalist class. It was for that reason alone that they were uh, um, or for sentimental, purely sentimental reasons that they sort of adopted nationalism and uh, took up the leadership of the national struggle. And he concludes, with such men at the helm, it is no wonder that the patriot parties of Ireland have always ended their journey upon the rocks of disaster, the rock of disaster. So you can see that what is being described here is uh, a weak and dependent bourgeoisie, dependent upon British capitalism, uh, which is unable to really carry out the basic bourgeois democratic tasks, such as land reform, such as protective barriers to protect Irish industry, uh, which are, would have been the consequence of a serious struggle for national self-determination. Uh, and in, the, in this, what, he, what, tr what he's doing, uh, Connolly, is he's foreshadowing actually conclusions which were much broader, really, but the same fundamental conclusions that were made by Trotsky 10 years later in his writings on the, uh, the theory of the permanent revolution in the context of Russian capitalism, talking about how that there too you had a, uh, a, a weak and dependent bourgeoisie, dependent upon international finance capital, again, particularly French uh, uh, finance capital, and uh, uh, who were prepared to sort of um, come to a, a compromise with the old um, uh, uh, ruling class, with the aristocracy, with the landlords and so forth, um, and were not capable of carrying on a consistent struggle for uh, the rights of the nations to self-determination, for democracy, for the real basic de capitalist development of the country, which the capitalist class in other countries had, had achieved in, in the, the, the great bourgeois revolutions in previous periods. Um, but he makes this even more explicit in some of his later writings. So this is from the introduction of, uh, uh, to uh, uh, Labour in Irish History. Connolly says, that the development of the system of capitalist society leads inevitably to the increasing conservatism of the non-working class element and to the revolutionary vigour and power of the working class. So he also points out another element here. This is in 1910. You'll see the context of this later on, which is that the, uh, uh, as, as, the, uh, as capitalism develops and it develops a revolutionary working class, the capitalist class has another reason to step back from a serious struggle uh, uh, for, uh, you, you know, uh, away from its sort of... Um, uh, from revolution, if you like, and become increasingly conservative. And he goes on that the middle class, growing up in the midst of the national struggle, and at one time, as in 1798, he's referring to the United Irishman uprising led by Wolfe Tone, uh, through the stress of the economic rivalry of England, almost forced into the position of revolutionary leaders against the political despotism of their industrial competitors, have now also bowed the knee to Baal, and have a thousand economic strings in the shape of investments binding them to English capitalism, as against every sentimental or historic attachment drawing them towards Irish patriotism. And he concludes, importantly, only the Irish working class remain as the incorruptible inheritors of the fight for freedom in Ireland. So he's, he sees that if the, as the bourgeoisie have become <coughs> completely reactionary, um, it is left to the working class to carry on the struggle, not just for uh, uh, social demands, not just for economic betterment of the working class, but against every form of national humiliation, uh, for every uh, democratic right that has yet to be won, that the bourgeoisie have, having abdicated that struggle. But he goes, he, he, he explains, uh, and, and similarly uh, with uh, uh, Trotsky, if you like, that the working class isn't simply going to stop at the creation of a, of a capitalist republic, if you like. It's going to go on to complete uh, uh, the socialist revolution. And therefore, he raises the slogan of a socialist republic, of a workers' republic. And again, this is a, once more from the 1890s. Uh, he, in, in a famous article called Socialism and Nationalism, he makes this explicit. He says that if you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organisation of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will, would be in vain. England would still rule you. 
She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planted in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our martyrs. So, yeah. Um, the problem was at this time, however, the majority of socialist parties up until this point had not connected the need for a revolutionary party of the working class to fight for both the socialist tasks and these democratic tasks and to take up the question, the mantle of the fight for national self-determination, which was a key task. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, they, for the most part, saw this as a concession to nationalism, if you like. And most parties at, the, at this time uh, that were present in Ireland, socialist parties, were connected to their British counterparts, like the Independent Labour Party and the Social Democratic Federation. And um, yeah, this was, in, this was in spite of the fact that uh, uh, Marx and Engels, in fact, had taken up the question of the need for Irish uh, independence. And they had done so not from the point of view, obviously, of Irish nationalism, but from the point of view of the interests of the world revolution and from the interests of the socialist revolution. And they laid out a number of reasons why it was necessary for socialists, particularly in Britain, to defend the right of self-determination for the Irish people. Uh, on the one hand, they, would, they saw that a strike for self-determination in Ireland would mean uh, a, an agricultural revolution and the death of uh, landlordism in Ireland, which would inevitably mean the death of landlordism in Britain and, and, and would start, would be the beginning, really, of a socialist re the socialist revolution uh, in England. Um, but they also saw uh, that it would clear the decks, if you like, of all of the national prejudice and hatred which had been stirred up as a result of the enforced uh, possession of Ireland by, uh, by Britain. Um, because, as you had seen, with, with the, uh, the, one of the only places to go for the, the impoverished Irish people was to emigrate. And you had uh, a large amount of emigration, particularly to Britain. And in every city, you had a little island. You had a, an Irish working class alongside the English workers. And uh, this, uh, this continued connection with Ireland was a deep source, obviously, of tremendous animosities. And the bourgeoisie knew how to use this to divide the English and the Irish working class. And therefore, Marx and Engels uh, raised uh, the, the necessity of uh, uh, separation, uh, possibly uh, followed by uh, federation down the line. But um, yeah, and in, in this, Lenin argued uh, uh, along uh, very similar lines uh, in, in connection to, to Russia. Um, and uh, he pointed out that, uh, and in, in a lot of polemics, such as, for example, his polemics with Rosa Luxemburg, who was an honest revolutionary, and uh, was struggling against Polish nationalism in particular. But in that struggle, she went too far. In the struggle against Polish nationalism, she denied the need for the, particularly the Russian party to take up the question of the right of nations to self-determination. And uh, uh, Lenin explained that uh, as, as well as the, the, na the nationalism of the small oppressed nation, there is also another uh, nationalism, if you like, which almost is hidden um, is, or, or is uh, under the sort of false flag of internationalism, it is possible to slip into the position of defending a far more reactionary nationalism, that is the nationalism of the oppressor nation, the big nation of, of, of Russia over Poland in the case where Lenin was polemicizing with Rosa Luxemburg. But in the case of a lot of British socialists, in arguing against uh, Connolly's position, they were really defending the forced um, uh, connection between England and Ireland and really were defending the position of, of British imperialism, essentially. Um, and uh, yeah, so however, I mean, from the point of view of the Irish Socialist Republican Party, the proof of the pudding was in the eating. Uh, this was a, this party had a massive impact, despite the fact it was almost entirely a youth organisation. It never had more than 100 members, but it had a high political level that he, um, con under Connolly's leadership. And uh, it had a tremendous impact within I Ireland. Um, uh, in the uh, Jubilee protests against the Jubilee, uh, Queen Victoria's Jubilee, um, it, it shot actually to international fame by organising protests of thousands of people uh, through Dublin. It, it participated in the Boer War protests. And uh, even as a byproduct, uh, you had, after Parnell, the Irish party had fallen apart. The, the bourgeois nationalists, seeing the rise of the Irish Socialist Republican Party, were, were forced to sort of uh, fuse their ranks again and formed under the leadership of John Redmond, the, uh, the Irish Parliamentary Party, almost. Uh, in fear, and there's this constant thing, this is a recurring theme of the, of the bourgeois nationalists, the constitutional nationalists, losing the leadership of the national struggle to more radical elements, to the working class elements, if you like. This was something that spurred them on. Now, Connolly, of course, was uh, an internationalist, and uh, he was tremendously proud of the fact that in 1900, uh, the Irish working class for the first time was represented at an international congress by 
um, um, the delegates of the ISRP. Uh, but what he saw there was a split down the middle of the world working class movement um, at the Paris conference um, and a, a, a split between reform and revolution, between the genuine Marxist elements and those moving in the direction of opportunism. And uh, Connolly and the Irish party were always on the left of the international. And in fact, it was in part to take up the struggle <coughs> against opportunism that Connolly first went on a speaking tour um, in, in Britain and later in America. And eventually he, he moved to America for seven years between 1903 and 1910. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to go into everything that happened in the course of those seven years, uh, sadly. Um, rather, I'll speak about what was going on in Ireland whilst he was away. This time in Ireland, um, the period whilst Connolly was away was a period of, of, of intense class struggle. Um, the, the beginning of which was heralded by the, the arrival of Jim Larkin in Belfast. Uh, who went over there, sent over by the National Union of Dock Labourers, to organise the, uh, the, the, the unorganised workers there. And uh, uh, Larkin very quickly organised hundreds of dockers and brought them out on strike. And unlike a lot of the more conservative uh, British trade union leaders, uh, he took every spark of discontent and deliberately whipped it up into a huge uh, firestorm through the means of the sympathetic strike, bringing one section of workers after another out in solidarity with each other, taking any grievance to sort of really uh, intensify the class struggle. And uh, he, he, he terrified uh, Larkinism, as it was called, terrified the, uh, the Irish uh, ruling class, who began to use the, uh, the, the sectarian cards. That was, their, that was what they used to basically try and divide <coughs> the working class along religious lines. Uh, but they failed at this time in Belfast uh, in, in 1907 when you had this great strike. In fact, it was, it was themselves who uh, found themselves split, the ruling class and their, their, their organisations. Uh, Connolly, uh, sorry, not Connolly, Larkin, <laughs> uh, even managed to get the police to come out on strike and mutiny. Um, so it really uh, struck terror into the hearts of the, uh, of the ruling class. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, Connolly was in America looking at these events going on and was desperate to really return uh, to the scene of the fight, essentially. Um, now, the, the, the struggle in Belfast at, at the end of the day was sold out by the British trade union leaders, basically. This, uh, they went over the heads of Larkin and the other uh, the, the workers in Belfast and uh, signed a deal with the bosses independently, which infuriated Larkin, really embittered him, and uh, he founded the Irish Transport and General Workers Union as a result. And this really starts a new chapter in, in, the, uh, in, in the history of uh, the Irish working class. Um, and opens up a period really of uh, intense class struggle in Ireland and uh, not just in Ireland this is also a period of intense class struggle rising in Britain the great unrest you have uh, um, uh, you have uh, miners being shot in South Wales you have uh, strikes across Britain and in Ireland itself you have a, a huge explosive growth of the transport workers union in, the, in, the, in this period uh, in 1911 it has 4,000 members by 1913 it has 300,000 members it's grown almost by a hundred times over that's the that's the the, 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 the the degree to which everything is sort of been whipped up and uh, um, the bosses are terrified and they begin organising. They begin organising to, to meet Larkinism uh, head on and to smash the Transport Workers Union. And uh, so Connolly returns in this context in 1910 uh, and he, goes, he starts with a, a speaking tour for the Socialist Party of Ireland, um, which was founded by former members of the Irish Socialist Republican Party. But yeah, it's a, very different, it's a very different country in a lot of respects. In, in many of the places that he goes, he finds himself being uh, attacked by mobs that have been whipped up by local politicians, local businessmen, and groups like the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Uh, in other words, uh, a sort of Catholic sectarianism. You know, they're attacking him as an atheist. He's a, he's a free thinker. Uh, whenever he's in Belfast, he's a, he's a Catholic and so forth. So he's obviously got nothing to do with religion. It's a class question at the end of the day. But the bosses in, in uh, you know, the, the so-called nationalist uh, um, progressive bourgeoisie here, you, you show their real faces, you know, whipping up um, uh, Catholic sectarianism as the answer to sort of the uh, uh, Protestant sectarianism um, that's been whipped up by the bosses in, in Belfast. And, uh, yeah, he's met by these, uh, these sort of uh, mobs uh, um, in, in a number of places. Um, but, yeah, before... The bourgeoisie really has time to have a showdown and uh, with uh, the transport workers union, with the, with the working class, 
which increasingly Dublin's becoming the centre of the Transport Workers' Union. The workers are organising uh, to a greater and greater extent then. A new crisis breaks out, and a crisis which isn't altogether unconnected, actually, to the, the growing class struggle in Ireland in this period. As I, me as I mentioned, the, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, with the declining importance of the, uh, if you like, the, the, the landlord class and the growing importance of finance capital, the British ruling class decided to pass a number of land acts that basically pensioned off the old landlord class in, in, uh, uh, in, in Ireland. And uh, as a result, they start moving in the direction of reform, of granting reforms like home rule, like the idea of an Irish parliament. Uh, and you have a home rule bill is, is passing through uh, the parliament in, in 1912. But of course, the context has now changed. They, they're no longer able to grant reforms. It becomes completely intolerable, the idea of granting home rule to Ireland in the context of, uh, of, of, of tremendous class struggle in Ireland and Britain. They, could, they see this as only, po I mean, the possibility, basically, of a socialist revolution in Ireland and, and facing a socialist island uh, uh, right next to their shores. Um, and therefore, the ruling class begin preparing a rebellion against this Home Rule Bill, which looks like it's going to pass through Parliament. And the Tory parties at the vanguard of this rebellion against Home Rule. Um, they, uh, you have uh, Edward Carson, uh, Lord Carson, goes over to uh, um, Ulster uh, in the north and uh, begins arming the Ulster Volunteers, uh, basically a reactionary organisation, much like the Black Hundreds in Russia. It's a lumpen organisation with aristocrats actually in the leadership and uh, tens of thousands of the, of, of the most backward layers uh, in, in Belfast are organised into this, uh, this Ulster Volunteers. And uh, guns are imported in their tens of thousands to arm, the, uh, to arm these groups. Meanwhile, in reaction to this, you have nationalist groups start to arm themselves. Then the, Liberal gov you know, the, then the government comes down and stops Im arms imports into, uh, into Ireland. But uh, um, yeah, you have a rebellion is being, uh, being organised. And uh, at the Curragh, you have a mutiny uh, led by the tops of the army, um, refusing to, uh, uh, to obey the government, basically. And the Liberal government at this time is, softly, is taking a very softly, softly approach with this sort of mutiny by the, uh, by the, 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 the capitalist class, basically. Um, so you see that the, the capitalist class always preach that the working class must follow constitutional norms, must go through parliamentary means and so on. But of course, when it's a crisis which really affects their vital interests, they showed, uh, as in 1912, 1913, that they will, uh, they will use any non-constitutional extra-parliamentary measures uh, necessary. But what was the response of the, you know, the nationalist uh, bourgeoisie in, uh, in Ireland? What was the, the, the nationalist middle class? Well, uh, John Redmond actually started to go into negotiations directly with Lord Carson about the question of what they called home rule within home rule, which basically meant a deal where uh, Carson and, and you know, the, 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 the bourgeoisie, the unionist bourgeoisie in the north could, could lord it over, create a sectarian statelet if they want in the north, and they can lord it over the, 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 workers, the workers there, as long as the nationalist bourgeoisie in the south could lord it over the workers there, basically. In other words, partitioning Ireland. This is what they began negotiating for. And Connolly said that this, would, this was a complete betrayal, and the working class had to resist this, even if it, at the cost of their own lives, because... Uh, to partition Ireland would mean a carnival of reaction. In fact, that has been the whole history of Ireland since partition has been, uh, uh, particularly in the north, um, uh, well, two sectarian states were, were formed after the partition of Ireland. Um, but furthermore than this, the, 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 the nationalist bourgeoisie was starting to take advantage of the fact that you had pogroms in the north, you had Catholics being kicked out of their jobs, and not just Catholics, uh, uh, trade unionists, socialists uh, were being kicked out of their jobs. Uh, you had this general reaction in, 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 in Belfast, and the bosses in Dublin began preparing to use the fact that the working class was on the defensive to strike their own blow. And uh, in August 1913, led by uh, uh, the biggest capitalist, really, and a former nationalist MP, William Martin Murphy, 400 bosses in Dublin locked out their workers. Um, uh, Larkin was imprisoned, and they, uh, they demanded of the workers that they resign their membership of the Transport Workers' Union. And 100,000 uh, workers and their family were, families were basically starved. This was the methods of the bosses, to starve the workers into submission, uh, to stop them from, uh, yet to, to break their organisation. And uh, this really, uh, at this point, Connolly came down to Dublin uh, with Larkin in prison to, to lead this struggle. Uh, but this showed the real division uh, within the, the, you know, the so-called nationalist camp. Because on the one hand, you had, you had the bosses 
you had uh, armed scabs which were being brought over from Britain to fight against the strikers to, uh, and the pickets, uh, the, 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 the upper echelons of the Catholic Church, and many of the bourgeois, the right-wing bourgeois nationalists, like the likes of Sinn Féin um, leader Arthur Griffith, and uh, others like this, uh, and then of course the British state, uh, all in one camp. And on the other side, you had the Transport Workers Union, the, the working class of Dublin, and all of the, the most revolutionary elements within the intelligentsia and the petty bourgeoisie. Um, uh, the revolutionary, the most revolutionary Republicans began coming over to the side of Connolly and the Transport Workers Union and the side of the working class. Um, and uh, in, in self-defence against these armed scabs, you had for the first time the organisation of the Irish Citizens Army. Uh, under the leadership of Captain Jack White, I think it was, and, uh, and James Connolly. Um, this was a, a really a, a monumental step in, in European working class history because it was the first time that you had the organisation of a Red Guard uh, anywhere, as far as, I can, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, workers arming themselves in self-defence uh, against the, the police, against the, uh, the scabs that were being used by the bosses. But ultimately, the, uh, the, the, the thing went down to defeat. Um, well, I say a defeat. Uh, the TUC in Britain completely sabotaged the movement. The only thing that could have made for a suc the success of the, uh, the, the, on the side of the workers would have been if you'd have had sympathetic action in Britain. And indeed you had had spontaneous action uh, in some, amongst some of the dock workers. In, uh, in Birmingham, I think some, uh, trans uh, some railway workers refused to move Irish goods. Uh, and you had mass meetings. I think there was something like 25,000 people came out to... To a, to a meeting in Manchester. Um, so the working class in Britain showed tremendous instinctive class solidarity. Hundreds of thousands of pounds were raised to feed the starving uh, uh, people of uh, working class of, of uh, Dublin. And uh, families even offered to take children into their homes to, uh, to look after these uh, starving children. Um, and the thing went down really to a stalemate though because the TUC refused to call coordinated action and the result was that uh, whilst the bosses didn't get what they want um, the working class uh, began returning to you had a return to work by the start of 1914 um, the transport workers union was uh, uh, bloody but unbowed um, and so you'd had a stalemate uh, essentially but at a tremendous cost for the working class uh, incredible suffering that winter for the workers of Dublin um, but before long before you even have uh, time to before the people even had time to draw breath, a new crisis is starting to develop in Europe, of course. Um, at the, and, and in August 1914, you have the outbreak of the First World War. Um, and uh, uh, a shocking situation, because previously, all of the leaders of the social democracy, all the workers' leaders across Europe, had promised to resist this war by any means necessary. They'd all signed declarations and, and, so, and so on and so forth. And now you had the majority of the workers' leaders were supporting this war. Uh, in, in Germany, uh, the official social democracy... Uh, uh, well, we had a discussion uh, on Friday night about that. Uh, in France, in one country after another, only in a, a, number of, a small number of countries, in, in Russia, in Serbia, and in Ireland, did you have the leadership of the workers' movement refusing to support uh, their bourgeoisie uh, in this bloody slaughter. And Connolly immediately understood the significance of this and was extremely embittered about the, this betrayal. He said, uh, these are his words, he says, what then becomes of all our resolutions, all our protests of fraternization, all our threats of general strikes, all our carefully built machinery of internationalism, all our hopes for the future? Were they all a sound and fury signifying nothing? Um, but it wasn't just the leadership of the, uh, of the workers' leaders, if you like, that betrayed. Well, you also had the, the bourgeois nationalists, uh, the, so uh, uh, the constitutional so-called nationalists, people like John Redmond and the home rule uh, bourgeoisie, uh, also supporting Britain in this war. Uh, this, this war for the self-determination of small nations like Belgium with all their colonial possessions uh, under the promise that if they, did, if they loyally supported the British Empire during the war, after the war they would get their independence uh, and they would be rewarded for their uh, civility. Not only that, but Redmond, who had managed to wangle his way into the leadership of the Irish Volunteers, this nationalist force that had organised to defend Home Rule against the Ulster Volunteers, um, um, he, he even offered the service of the Irish volunteers to go and fight in Belgium, actually. 
And this resulted in a split in that organization. And the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was a revolutionary secretive um, uh, organization, occupied the offices of the volunteers. And the, the organization split. About 15,000 went with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Um, but Connolly, as soon as he heard the news of the outbreak of the war, it's incredible if you read his articles in August 1914, the conclusions he has already drawn. He's already on the path to an insurrection against uh, the uh, uh, British rule and against British capitalism. Um, he already uh, had drawn this conclusion within days of hearing about the outbreak of the war, uh, which placed Connolly in a, in, a tiny, in a camp of a tiny minority within the international workers' movement, a tiny minority who, who were not just opposed to the war from pacifist reasons, but knew that the only way to end the war was to turn it into a civil war, was to basically uh, turn it into a, a class war. Uh, and this was the same conclusion drawn by Trotsky in Vienna, uh, Lenin in Zurich, and uh, a handful of other revolutionary, uh, genuine revolutionary internationalists. And uh, these, are, these are Connolly's words. He says, uh, this is in August 1914, I believe. He says, should the working class of Europe, rather than slaughter each other for the benefit of kings and financiers, tomorrow proceed, uh, proceed tomorrow to erect barricades all over Europe, to break up bridges and destroy the transport service that war might be abolished, we should be justi uh, perfectly justified in following such a glorious example and contributing our aid to the final dethronement of the vulture classes that rule and rob the world. Um, but for him, it wasn't just words. He, he wasn't just, uh, uh, I mean, everyone was in, in, in theory in favor of a revolution that brought an end to the war. You know, even probably the official leaders of the social democracy in Germany were probably in favor of it as long as, you know, as, lo as, long as the, uh, uh, the British uh, workers started it or the Russian workers started it, if you like. Connolly wasn't simply a fatalist. Uh, he, he understood that it was the revolutionary duty of the Irish working class and of the leadership of the Irish working class to, to act and act alone if necessary. His words were, the time for Ireland's battle is now. The place for Ireland's battle is here. And by such means, he goes on, Ireland may yet set the torch to a European conflagration that will not burn out until the last throne and the last capitalist bond and debenture will be shriveled on the funeral pyre of the last uh, warlord. Um, so you can see he has a, he has a, co a concept of a, of a revolution in Ireland uh, that will... Um, uh, bring an end to the war that will start the European-wide uh, revolution, which is quite clearly a socialist revolution. That's the content of it. And uh, Connolly was uh, extremely uh, had a real sense of urgency about the need for this uh, this uprising. And uh, you can see that where this stemmed from. Um, Connolly was very much aware of the possibility of striking too soon. If if an insurrection came too soon, that it could fail. But he'd also um, he'd also studied Irish history. And he'd seen that in 1848, uh, in 1882, uh, in a number of occasions, particularly under the middle class leadership, you'd had situations where the, the middle class leaders had talked and talked and talked and talked, and then they had let slip a possibility to d deliver a blow to British imperialism. And that window would remain closed for another generation. Um, and uh, he saw that now that you had the war, uh, British imperialism was extremely exposed uh, because its army was stretched all across the Western Front and there was, an, there was a limited window of opportunity to strike a blow. And each day that passed uh, saw, um, in, uh, saw uh, if you like, uh, a real threat, a real sword of Damocles uh, standing over the, the working class, particularly the threat of conscription. Um, in Ireland, which was uh, to come up again later. But all, all sorts of threats. You had democratic rights that had been acquired over decades of struggle were being got rid of overnight. Um, every day, tens of thousands of socialist workers were slaughtering each other. And then, of course, uh, very ominously in Ireland, you have creeping prices going upwards. And with the, with the landlords having been uh, pensioned off, as I mentioned, it wasn't going to be the tenant farmers now who would starve from a new famine. It would be the Irish working class that would starve. The working class being the, the class which has the future of humanity in its hands. He saw that the future was one of socialism or barbarism, basically. And he could see the elements of barbarism in the situation. So there was real, there was, a, I mean, what I'm trying to explain, what I'm trying to get across is the reasons for this sense of urgency, if you like, gripping uh, uh, Connolly. Um, the only question was, would the working class be ready for an insurrection? Would the working class be ready for a, a new uprising? Um, now, I want to address finally before coming on to the Easter uprising itself. 
One uh, very uh, pernicious uh, distortion, I think, of Connolly's uh, ideas, and this is something that he, the, 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 the author of the best biography of, of Connolly that I'm aware of, um, C. Desmond Greaves, uh, perpetuates, the idea that he made um, like an 11th hour conversion to a, a basically a conception of the uprising, which was a, an uprising for a bourgeois republic, basically, and uh, that he either converted to simple Fenian-style republicanism or that he had uh, become an unconscious Stalinist and was basically in favor of a, 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 a struggle for national self-determination first and then somewhere down the line, uh, you know, the delay, uh, eventually you'd have a struggle for socialism when the conditions have matured. The stagist approach which is put across by uh, uh, Stalinists. Um, well, this is completely contradicted by any of, uh, if the, the conce his conception of the, of the revolution, of the insurrection, is it's contradicted by his writings all the way up until really you have the outbreak of the Easter uprising. Um, this is from January 1916. This is what he says uh, in, a, in an article entitled What is Our Programme? which was aimed at the rank and file of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the volunteers. He said, we realized that the power of the enemy to hurl his forces upon the forces of Ireland would lie at the mercy of the men who control the transport system of Ireland. We saw that the hopes of Ireland as a nation rested upon the due recognition of the identity of interest between that ideal and the rising hopes of labor. Um, and uh, yeah, further, further uh, we have uh, an explanation here of, uh, of what had frustrated this possibility of such an insurrection. And he blames, he places the blame upon the so-called patriotic uh, capitalist class, uh, the, uh, um, you know, the progressive bourgeoisie that the Stalinists would have exists. He said that uh, had we not been attacked and betrayed by, by many of our fervent advanced patriots, had they not been so anxious to destroy us, so willing to applaud even the British government when it attacked us, had they stood by us and pushed our organization all over Ireland, it would now be in our, it would now be in our power, at a word, to crumple and demoralize every offensive move of the enemy against the champions of Irish freedom. Had we been able to carry out all of our plans as such an Irish organization of labor alone could carry them out, we could at a word have created all the conditions necessary of striking a successful blow whenever the military arm of Ireland wished to move. Now, what is being described there, in my opinion, is an insurrection which is connected to a revolutionary general strike. That is what Connolly is basically talking about. That, that was his conception of, uh, of how an insurrection in Ireland uh, could take place. Um, the problem was, uh, there are two factors which were not present at that time, which are necessary for such uh, 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 an insurrection to be possible on that basis. And they were, on the one hand, uh, and this is something that is explained by Trotsky in his History of the Russian Revolution. There's a chapter on the art of insurrection, and he, he says that you need to, um, on the one hand, have an organization which involves the mass of the workers, basically, brings them into the, the mass element of the insurrection. Um, such an organization can't be brought into existence willy-nilly. Uh, it is the product of a revolutionary period itself, uh, Soviets, workers' councils, or, or what have you. Um, but it also, what is also necessary is a party of the working class, uh, a revolutionary <coughs> Marxist organization with uh, educated Marxist cadres at all level of the labor movement in, the, uh, in, in Soviets or, or organizations like that, within the unions, uh, within groups like the Citizens Army, the Transport Workers Union, you would have needed a party like that to, to coordinate basically the mass side of the insurrection and the conspiratorial military technical side of the uh, insurrection if the two are to be harmonized and brought together as they were in the October insurrection in 1917 in Russia. There was only uh, one problem with that, and that was the fact that Connolly had no experience of the Russian Revolution, because it didn't happen until a year and a bit later. <laughs> um, it's very easy with, with hindsight to explain how a successful insurrection can take place. But what has to be understood is that the October Revolution in Russia was only possible on the basis of the failed 1905 revolution. It was only uh, uh, possible on the basis, actually, of innumerable uh, attempts of uprisings, insurrections, uh, I mean, Lenin talks about in left-wing communism how the Bolshevism was the product of an unprecedented period of, of, of vast different experiences in, in Russia from 1903 to 1917. Um, the rapid alterna alternation between legal and illegal forms of work um, and so on. 
Uh, in other words, this experience was absent for, for uh, Connolly. He didn't have <coughs> access to it. And furthermore, and this, I think, really increases his stature. It doesn't diminish it. All of the conclusions he drew on the national question, the need for an insurrection, uh, the character of that insurrection, were the product of his own independent creative thinking. He had no contact with Lenin, with Trotsky, with Rosa Luxemburg, with the other great revolutionaries of, Europe, of, uh, of, of the European Marxist movement at that time. And as a result, uh, he, was, he was forced, therefore, to, uh, to, to compromise uh, on, on this, uh, this conception of an insurrection and to come to an agreement with the Irish Republican Brotherhoods, which had basically infiltrated the Irish volunteers, uh, because they had far bigger forces. He simply didn't have the forces to carry out this insurrection. There were 300 members in the Irish Citizens' Army. The, uh, the volunteers had um, about 15,000. Did I say 300 in the ICE? Yeah. So they had about 15,000 members. Uh, the problem was that this organization did not have the same conception as Connolly of a, of a politically prepared uh, uh, insurrection, of a revolution. They had a purely conspiratorial technical, they, they, it was a petty bourgeois organization led by um, you know, very brave men, uh, uh, people like Patrick Pierce, Joseph Blunkett and so forth, um, but they didn't have a clear class outlook. A lot of their membership was working class. But the, 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 the class nature of the leadership was petty bourgeois. Uh, uh, and uh, as such, they had relied upon um, uh, yeah, purely conspiratorial methods. In fact, after they had taken over the in Irish Republican Brotherhood, took over the Irish Volunteers headquarters, they deliberately left in place key moderates like Owen McNeill at the leadership of this organization to try and disguise the fact that they were preparing an insurrection by leaving these moderates in place. But the, the problem was, not only might you disguise this from the British uh, government, you might disguise this from your own, your own members, uh, from your potential allies, uh, people like uh, Connolly, who was actually preparing to go independently of the volunteers because he thought, he, he thought that the Irish uh, Republican Brotherhood uh, were, were, were going to bottle it or, or make a botch of it. Um, and therefore, um, yeah, they left people like McNeil in the leadership of the Irish volunteers, which was a massive mistake. Um, now, the date of the uprising was set for Easter Sunday on in 1916. Uh, Connolly came to this agreement with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. But the problem was, Owen McNeill and uh, other moderates were, were eventually rumbled them that this, that this uh, conspiracy was in preparation. And uh, a countermanding order was sent, which completely uh, the, the, turned the thing into uh, a disaster. Um, it had a massive impact. Only a tenth of the Irish volunteers uh, came out. One and a half thousand members came out. Uh, the, they had to delay the uprising for a day, uh, Monday, the day after. And uh, there were other, there were other uh, unfortunate incidents. Um, there was a capture of arms that were, were being imported. But nevertheless, it was too late. The thing had to go ahead because the arrests would have taken place and the thing would have been, it would have been too late had they, uh, had they failed to, to strike. And they did on, uh, on Monday of Easter week. The, uh, the, the GPO uh, became on uh, O'Connell Street became the centre of, uh, uh, of, of the forces in Dublin. Connolly became uh, the commandant of the forces in Dublin. And uh, for six days they held out against the British forces. I won't go into the technical details of the Easter uprising. Uh, the British were, were paralysed at first. Uh, but they eventually regrouped and uh, they crushed the uprising at a tremendous uh, cost, not just to, the, to the, the, the fighters, but to Dublin as a city was, uh, was, turned, was, was set on fire. Um, half of O'Connell Street was, uh, was, was flattened. The first building they, they smashed was uh, Liberty Hall, the Transport Workers Union uh, headquarters. And uh, eventually, uh, after six days, as I said, the, uh, the revolutionaries had to surrender. Connolly, by this time, had been mortally wounded. He'd been hit in the, uh, in the ankle, I believe. And um, um, then, uh, th at that time, uh, after the defeat of the, these, uh, of the revolutionaries, the, uh, the, the, the nationalist bourgeoisie were wholeheartedly on the side of the British, cheering them on. Redmond, the church, all of the home rule press uh, celebrated the British victory. But very quickly, they had to change their tune because the British were in for revenge at this point. And they started an execution, not just one or two of the leaders, but uh, uh, one after another, executing them, executing them. And then finally, Connolly himself was taken out, already mortally wounded. Uh, he was taken into a courtyard in Kilmainham jail, and he was strapped to a chair because he wasn't able to stand, and uh, he was shot dead. And this, t this turned the mood of revulsion uh, against, uh, against the British. Um, but um, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah. That was, uh, as I say, um, 
Now, these events were misunderstood by a, a large number of people, uh, even so-called Marxists, people like Plekhanov and Radek uh, in Russia, denounced these events as a putsch. Um, and Lenin had a, a, an answer for these people. He, he, it was at that point that he explained that, uh, you know, unfortunately, sorry to say, but uh, um, when a crisis of capitalism emerges, all of the different sources of rebellion aren't quite nice and harmonious enough to all go and flow into one stream all at once. Uh, inevitably, a, a period of revolution is, uh, is, is initiated by premature uprisings um, and uh, defeats, setbacks. Um, and he said that you, it's, unfortunately, revolutions don't happen where you have one army lines up over this side in favor of socialism, another army lines up over that side in favor of imperialism, and the two have it out, and that's what a social revolution looks like. He says, such people uh, pay lip service to socialist revolution um, um, when they don't even, uh, uh, when they wouldn't know what it looked like if it bumped them on the nose. <laughs> that's not exactly what he said, that's a paraphrase, obviously. <laughs> Um, but as Lenin explains, the, uh, the real uh, misfortune, this, uh, this is what he said of the Irish uprising. He says, it is the misfortune of the Irish that they rose prematurely before the European revolt of the proletariat had, come ha had had time to mature. Uh, capitalism is not so harmoniously built that the various sources of rebellion can immediately merge of their own accord without reverses and defeats. And that's precisely the, the, the real um, uh, thing that was missing, the working class or having had the stuffing knocked out of it in the Dublin uh, uh, lockout in 1913, it hadn't had time to recover its forces. Within a couple of years, it, it had had time to recover its forces, and there was a revolutionary movement exploded within Ireland. You had, in 1918, a massive general strike against the attempt to introduce conscription, and uh, a general election at which the Irish Parliamentary Party was completely smashed, um, and Sinn Féin rose uh, on that basis. Why did Sinn Féin uh, uh, manage to... Uh, take the leadership, if you like, of the revolution in Ireland, it was because the Labour leaders completely boycotted the election. The leadership, the second line uh, and the third line of leadership within the Labour movement in Ireland was completely incapable of the task. Many of them were personally loyal to Connolly, but this was the biggest mistake, I think, of Connolly's life, was to, to fail to build a Bolshevik-style party um, the, of, of, of revolutionary cadres who could have led the working class in, the socialist re in a socialist revolution of, for which there was a huge potential in the period from uh, uh, 1919 through to 1922. Instead, the leadership fell to uh, the, the, the petty bourgeois nationalists, basically, who diverted the whole thing into a guerrilla struggle. And eventually, it led with the betrayal and the partition of Ireland into two sectarian states, as I, as I mentioned. Um, so that uh, that's, takes me over 50 minutes, so I'm going to have to uh, draw a line under that there. Uh, there's plenty more that can be said, but we can open it for a discussion now, I think. Thank you for tuning in to IMTV Radio. Subscribe or download the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.